Wages Rise, Dutton's Dangerous Disinformation, Why School Funding is a Targeted Use for the Surplus, and Good News for Stone Workers. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison, and I hope wherever you are around Australia or indeed around the world, you're having a wonderful day. A wonderful day! I am joined from the floor among the scattered pillows of the spare room by the great, the glorious, the hugger of Germanicus, the best-selling playwright (laughs) of Fall in Love, and the questions uh, coming soon to theatres in South Australia and uh, Sydney. Say the words New South Wales. You can say them. I know. I just, anyway, it's a penal colony. But is my wife your friend and originator from New South Wales? Van Badham, how are you, Van? Well, I didn't originate New South Wales, Ben. And as you know, I'm a little bit vulnerable today because I had a shoulder procedure. So if I sound a little bit curt, everyone, it is because I had a dirty big needle rammed into my frozen shoulder this morning. Yes, I know. Ah! We're getting older, dear listeners. We're getting older. I don't like it. It beats the alternative. It, true. True. But and, um, my heart goes out to anyone who's had shoulder problems because it it's not pleasant. And it's hilarious because they were like, oh, yeah, well, you know, if you play a lot of sport. And I was like, do I look like I play a lot of sport? More than happy to watch it. Maybe I've got a bit exuberant during the Matildas, been jumping up and down, throwing my fist in the air. Must have been. This can happen. It can, it does. Ben, speaking of exuberant... And accumulated micro-trauma, yes. Wages are finally rising in Australia. The country's wage price index, the fancy economist way of saying wages, (laughs) have gone up 1.3% in the last quarter and 4% compared with a year ago. Did you know this is record modern wage growth? I did know that, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it turns out... Labor governments might know a thing or two about redistributive economics, Ben. Indeed. In fact, in fact, people, the ABS has even said that the government is uh, the main driver of wage growth, along with improvements to enterprise bargaining agreements through changes to the minimum wage, changes to the awards. Uh, and the 8.6%, uh, that's the 8.6% increase for the national minimum uh, uh, award wage, but also the 15% increase for workers in aged care. So this is, this is a government that has actually taken real, tangible, measurable action to lift wages for working people, and we're starting to see that flow through into the economy, uh, into people's pay packets. Of course, there's an offsetting element to this, and that is... Gross price gouging by some of Australia's greediest corporations, Ben. And it really is horrendously gross price gouging. It is just gobble, gobble, gobble. 
And a shout out to the union movement, because not only are they fighting for those wage increases, particularly around minimum wages and the increase for aged care workers, those increases, while delivered by government, were campaigned for by the trade union movement. If you're not a member, you should join. Go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. Sorry. That's W-A-W. Because none of this would be happening without the labour movement. But it's not just on that side of the ledger that unions are doing this work, Van. This week they've wrapped up uh, something we uh, reported on in a story earlier in the year when they launched it, the price gouging inquiry Mm -hmm. with Alan Fells. Yes. Some very interesting revelations uh, around the price gouging inquiry. It is really getting quite frightening out there and we're noticing in our little corner of regional Australia, we had a couple of kids, like kids, children, turn up on our doorstep the other day asking if there were any jobs they could do around our house for money and we read that as an economic indicator that kids are asking for stuff, you know, it's the end of the year, Christmas is coming, very heavy marketing towards children and you know, the idea that, well, you'll have to go out and earn some money yourself, I think, is being, has been mentioned somewhere. Yeah. We know that small businesses in our community are struggling at the moment. It's a really concerning time because these demands are putting, uh, that are being put on everyday wage earners and small businesses are unreasonable. Wages are going up because of targeted economic policy to address the fact that we had deliberate wage suppression admitted to by the Liberals, admitted to it when they were in government, when Matthias Gorman, remember him, was Minister for Finance. He admitted live on national television that wage suppression was a deliberate feature of economic policy. So you had this widening gap between not rich and poor in Australia, but rich and working in Australia. And we are now in a situation where we have government that's prepared to do the hard yards to turn that around. But as I hate to keep reminding people, the federal government in this country does not have the legal power afforded to it in the Constitution to affect prices. There have been two referenda on this issue in the 1940s under Ben Chifley, in the 1970s under Gough Whitlam, to ask for federal government, to asking the Australian people to have the have the power mm. to impose price controls, which also means the federal power to cap rents and mm-hmm. freeze rents, mm-hmm. and that was denied by a vote of the Australian people overwhelmingly both times. So we're in a situation where the government is doing what it can to deliver wage increases, finally, mm. but corporate Australia, over over whose prices the federal government has no power, is just exploiting and gouging us, well, making an absolute mockery of, oh, yeah, the free market means that to be competitive, companies will lower their prices. Really? What if they all act in concert with one another? Yeah, well, that's right. And really that's what we're seeing, and I think that's what the price gouging inquiry is finding, is that it's not cartel behaviour, which is, of course, where they conspire together to set a price, but rather taking indicators from one another. And in today's era of instantly accessible data, it's never been easier Mm. 
to get those indicators to 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 analyze where your competition is going to set their price uh, and to set prices accordingly. And Van, there are some numbers here that really back in what you're saying. Commonwealth Bank posted a 10.2 billion dollar profit. Westpac 7.2 billion. NAB 7.7 billion. The ANZ 7.4 billion. I mean, combined, you're looking at their what 30. 32 billion 32 billion and the money's coming from somewhere well, and that somewhere is you yeah mostly it's coming from people uh paying mortgages or paying rent on people's mortgages uh that's a huge amount of money the reserve bank and there's been lots of commentary since the last reserve bank rise i think they got that very wrong i said that last week there's more and more data that shows that they probably got that wrong. China's in deflation. Germany is tipping towards deflation. The US looks like cutting rates in possibly the third quarter of next year rather than the end of next year. Uh, and in fact, that's being priced in heavily. So there's a there's a bit of there's a bit of misunderstanding about what causes these issues still. The new Reserve Bank governor, I don't think, has realised that when Coles' profits are up 17.1% and inflation is up 7 maybe there's a profiteering problem. You know, when Woolworths uh, are up 14%, um, the Australia's largest general insurer, their profits went up 140%. Origin Energy, one of the biggest energy providers, their profits went up 83.5%. Like these are huge profit increases. And where is the disincentive for, where, to do that? Where is the incentive for them to lower prices? Because mm. it's going to be it, like market sentiment is not working. No, and, and, you know, we have to... Oh, it's just all such nonsense, isn't it? Yeah, man, the free market will, like, totally provide, like, the most number of goods and services uh, at the lowest cost because, like, entrepreneurs will be, like, competing, like, a free marketplace and to, like, maintain a market, uh, you know, they'll have to offer consumers. Like, really? What is the consumer choice? Like, what is the what is the consumer choice on offer here for us to make different financial decisions? There are families of working people where people are working full-time and, you know, having to decide whether they're going to pay their rent, buy food, or allow the power to be continued, Ben. Yeah, it's really shocking some of the stories that the AC2 price gouging inquiries heard. And, and I just cannot stress enough why it's so important, and we'll, we'll touch on this later on, that we do have targeted interventions. And I know everyone feels the pinch. Everyone feels the pinch. And, you know, there's research that shows that people who are on a quarter of a million dollars a year in their household think that, you know, they, they're struggling, right? And they're not. Like, they're not, you know. <laughs> and people, people have weird senses of what struggle means, but we know that there are actual people on incomes far less than the average, which is around 90,000, much closer to the median, which is closer to 50,000, 60,000, who, quite frankly, 
are not able to pay every bill as and when it comes. They're not able to plan ahead what they're going to buy their kids for Christmas. Retailers are talking about they expect a very lean Christmas. It was interesting. I was actually in Maya today Mm. and, like, I remember in years gone by extremely intense Maya Christmas Wonderland Mm. and I did not see the investment in the Wonderland this year. Like, it was almost like Maya... And I don't know if this is deliberate. If you know, please send yeah, an email yeah. to the week on Wednesday. But it seemed like a leaner offering, like it wasn't necessarily worth their while yeah. to have the marketing spend to offer things that people wouldn't be able to buy. And it, it felt like that to me. That could just be a feeling that's just observational. But these so things that like- is That is what we call, well, that is what economists call consumer sentiment, uh, which is not a real thing, but is actually something that people try and capture and pretend is is a real thing. It, it's a feeling, right? It's the vibe of the thing. The vibe. If enough people have the same vibe, they tend to make similar decisions. That's the kind of economist, that, that's what underlines economics. It's so funny when you break it down. It's not a science. It's like, not a science. Do we think enough people are going to get the vibe on this? Like marketing, also not a science. Is, it, is the vibe right? You know, and look, one of the key things here, as you say, government can't set prices. There are some things in some areas, Queensland government is doing stuff around electricity because they own their electricity assets, so they're doing some stuff. Yeah, if governments own assets, they can control the prices because they're their enterprises. Which is great. We've seen Victoria reintroduce uh, legislation for the State Electricity Commission here in Victoria this week. Can't wait. Uh But, of course, we've also seen, and this is what the federal government can do, the closing the loopholes bill. And we've talked about this before, and we're going to keep talking about it because now- We're going to keep talking about it until everybody who listens to the show phones or emails David Pocock, who's the senator of the ACT, and the two members of the Jackie Lambie network in the state of Tasmania, who really need to get the message that closing the loopholes is very important to people. And quite frankly, it's not – can I just say to everyone who does listen to this show, who has been spreading that message, congratulations, because some polling has come out that shows that over the last three months, uh, the numbers of people who support – Action on wage theft, which we know impacts low-income workers the most uh, and and women the most, and on uh, casual workers being paid the same if they're doing the same job. Uh, sorry, uh, labour hire workers being paid the same if they're doing the same job as a directly employed worker. Those numbers are now at 80 and 65%. They have gone up substantially, in some cases by as much as 20 points, uh, and that gig workers should get basic minimum rights as well, just in the last three months. So even while big business has spent like $24 million trying to convince Australians that it's okay to be ripped off, it's okay to rip off your neighbour, it's fine if the person working next to you is being ripped off, don't worry about it, it's all for the good of BHP and Qantas and uh, Rio Tinto and Santos. Actually, people are waking up to this just broken economic model that sees $9 billion over a decade taken out of the pockets of working people and funneled into the profits of some of those very, very profitable companies that I've just mentioned, Van. Oh, and the the effects are just catastrophic. And I keep thinking about our little town. I keep thinking about 
kids going door to door asking for work, I I keep thinking about small business owners who are struggling because this is the thing, right? The, The impact on workers and like the impact on wage earners is an impact on small business Mm. and especially in little regional economies, you know, like penny, like wage theft, underpayment, stagnant wages, you know, and price gouging by big corporations, that absolutely squeezes your little mom and pop store, as they call them in America. Oh, absolutely. Or mom and mom or pop and pop. Well, you think about where... Or mop and pom, whatever. You think about where... Small business buys from they buy from big business, and if big business is getting those kind of uh, large profit increases, you know if Origin's getting a, a what was it a eighty three percent increase in profits, that's coming from households and small businesses. Small businesses literally have the lights on all day and all night. You know th- this is they're the people paying for it, um, and then that squeezes them and their ability to pay workers and so on and so on it goes. That's why strong legislation is needed. That's why it has to come in a framework of legislative, regulatory and cultural socio-institutions like unions that actually change the power dynamics because small businesses are less powerful than big businesses. But individual casual workers in hospitality are also less powerful than the person who owns the small business, usually. So you do have to get these balances right. That's what the Closing the Loopholes Bill is about. It's not saying you can't hire casual workers if you're a hospitality business. It's saying if you deliberately set up your business to steal money from casual workers because you think that's a good business model, <coughs> Maryvale, then you will suffer criminal consequences. And quite frankly, I don't understand why that's controversial. I don't understand. I don't understand. What's con- How is that controversial? Unless people are just awful, disgusting, greedy scumbags. And look, people are. Some people are. And they hang out with other disgusting, greedy scumbags. And do you know what was actually really helpful? When that Tim Gurner guy from the Gurner Group was like, yeah, what we need is an- we need to force more unemployment. Like, if you Remember that? That wasn't oh, that yeah. long ago. And there was such an outcry that he apologised within 24 hours. But, you know, they still believe that. But they still believe it. They just don't like getting caught in public. And if we don't have the market power to say, no, electricity company, I will not pay your bill. This is outrageous. We need to exercise social and political party, political party, political power through political parties and through trade unions. Yeah, absolutely. Look. And thank you to all the people who are members of trade unions who, through their membership, enabled the ACTU to do their price gouging inquiry so we could get this stuff on record and go, this is outrageous. It absolutely is. Van, speaking of outrageous, I want to turn, of course, it is a parliamentary sitting week this week, uh, and there has been some revelations uh, from the High Court, welcomed in some quarters, condemned in others. Uh, Let's just look at some uh, basic facts before we get into why I think uh, it's outrageous, right? Uh, I don't, not the High Court decision, but what I think Peter Dutton has tried to do with the High Court decision is outrageous. I'm going to hold my fire because this was so enraging. So there was a High Court decision which has said that the Australian government does not have the constitutional power to keep people detained indefinitely where there is 
no realistic prospect of being able to resettle or release that person uh, into another country or into the community. This means that uh, around 90 people uh, who have been detained for, in some cases, for quite some time, all of which arrived during the previous government, the coalition government in Australia, uh, have been released from detention. Uh, These are universally foreign nationals, uh, universally uh, seeking asylum. Some, a small number of them, uh, are wanted for uh, criminal acts in other countries. Uh, many are wanted on political activism charges or, uh, you know, they're wanted by dictatorships, basically. Yeah. There are Those notoriously uh, truthful organisations, dictatorships. Yeah. There, there, are, there are a small number who have admitted to having committed crimes in other countries and a big deal has been made out of one individual who I'm not going to name, I'm not going to get into the detail of that, but who... Uh, has admitted that they did murder, they were involved in a, in a political gang, a political assassination in another country, and if they get sent back there, uh, it's being clearly indicated they will be executed, and Australia has a policy of not sending people to be executed in foreign countries. All right, that's a, been a long-standing policy. Yeah, it's almost like we value human life here. Like that's a pretty shared principle of Australian people and Australian culture. Now, and we also love, this is a really key word at the moment, like I really think Australians need to be more explicit on something that's dear to our hearts and that is democracy. Like democracy, that quote from Winston Churchill, uh, it's a terrible form of government except for all of the other ones that we've tried. Yeah. I believe that's a very bad paraphrase. But democracy is really important because if everybody's equal before the law and if everybody has the right to vote and to exercise the selection of government as rested in the people, it means that that principle of equality and power with the people reifies, becomes real through all the other social agencies of that particular community. And dictatorships don't have that. People so, are not equal in dictatorships. And, and can I just be clear here, Van, of the 92 people who this decision by the High Court impacts, uh, 78, 78 cannot be returned due to, and this is from the department, a well-founded fear of persecution. So that's the vast majority of them, vast majority of them. 14 are stateless or uh, they're simply unable to provide identity documentation. Um, some of them, you know, were originally, when they left their country of origin, they don't even, they didn't know what their country of origin was because they were children. You know, these are, this is the sort of situation that we find ourselves in. Small. Because we've had 20 years of indefinite detention. Yeah, and and... You know, this is – so, yes, this is a high court decision. So these people have had to be released. Um, Immigration Minister Andrew Giles has released them on to um, the appropriate visas. Uh, they're generally short-term visas at the moment. They're trying to come up with uh, more more ongoing permanent solutions for each of these. Keep in mind that each of these people have individual circumstances, not 
They are not a homogenous group. They are not all from one place. They have not all lived the same lives, done the same things. They have a range of circumstances that have to be taken into account. And that's basically what the High Court said, is that you can't just throw people into a camp or a motel room or something and leave them there in the hope that they forget about themselves. That's not Yeah, that's okay. not how human life works. And look, what is really alarming about this is that Peter Dutton is making out as if the government respecting and following a precedent set through the determination of Australia's legal responsibilities through the High Court that somehow that's bad? Like, Peter Dutton is effectively saying, oh, well, the Labor Party has just released rapists into the street. They were rapists and they eat babies and they all worship Satan and they're foreigners. They're foreigners who eat babies and rape and worship Satan. Hardcore criminals, he's called them. Hardcore criminals. 81, he's called them 81 hardcore criminals. 81 hardcore criminals. So, right, so we we don't think that, do we, like, the way that you discredit pro-democracy activists in an authoritarian country is generally to say that they are monstrous and have done terrible things and this goes on and on and on. But the more disturbing element here, well, one, authoritarianism exists and, two, Peter Dutton is kind of using some of the tactics that we associate with authoritarian movements, which is just to make things up. Like Putin, for example, just makes things up. He's an authoritarian. Russia is not a democratic country. You know, the the lies, anybody who's still following the war in Ukraine, and I really wish you would because a lot of other conflicts in the world, that one's pretty cut and dried. Ukraine, democratic country, invaded by autocratic Russia, people tortured, murdered, abducted. Like, it is very clear there, absolute, there is no culpability on Ukraine's behalf for Russians invading them and levelling cities like um, Mariupol. And the situation that we have is that that perpetuation of authoritarianism is made possible by leaders who just make up lies to suit themselves. And it, and then it, it goes to the heart of what we've talked about before around disinformation and misinformation and the willingness to use those lies to obtain power without any thought about what that means. And, you know, I'm a big Game of Thrones fan, as you know, and I've been re-watching, a bit, re-watching it a little bit lately, uh, and there are some really great lines about winning a kingdom is not the same as ruling a kingdom. And... This is the this is the real horror show that we are, that America lived through under Trump, that we potentially face if Dutton ever becomes prime minister, is that if he wins these sorts of arguments, if he's able to use this kind of dehumanizing, divisive language, if he's able to get credibility with the media, and you know I, I've got to say again, the media has to be really much more on this. You can't just say 81 hardened criminals because that's his quote. And credit to uh, the people who were running the Guardian blog today who kept saying um, there is no evidence that the 81 people were criminals. In fact, um, evidence suggests far fewer than that have ever committed any form of criminal offence anywhere in the world. You know, But there is this constant barrage of disinformation and misinformation we saw it during the referendum. We're seeing it now. There's going to be 
more and more of it. And it comes at the same time. In our first story, we talked about wages. We talked about cost of living. We talked about real tangible issues. This is 94 people. Like, and they're, they're, you know, all unique individual people who all have extremely complex backstories. Yeah. Given the fact that they they became refugees in the first place. And they all have human value. But let's be really clear in almost any city pub on Friday night, you're going to get through 94 patrons in the first hour like, like like that. This is not a large group of people. So the idea that somehow or another this small group of people, even if they were criminals, which, by the way, at least 74 of them are not, um, they are genuinely unable to return to their country of origin, even if they were it is such a small number of people. Yet Peter Dutton is making out that somehow or another Labor's turning Satan worshippers onto the streets. And that's just not true. It's no, not it's real. Not true. And it's, it's designed to scare people. And it's a real problem. So this is what when we talk about post-truth. Yeah. You know, what Trump did, the unforgivable sin of Donald Trump, wasn't that he squeezed the truth a bit or spun things. It was that he outright lied. Just outright lied, said whatever he thought his base wanted to hear and did whatever he felt like. And those lies are, of course, coming undone in the 91 indictments that he is currently facing in the American legal system. The problem that we have is that Peter Dutton has learned the wrong lesson from Trump. Rather than learning that the truth is inherently virtuous and as a politician you should address it, and, yes, you can take an ideological position on the truth, right, and mm. go, right, this is what the Australian economy looks like. My conservative opinion, conservative opinion is we should pay less tax and have less services and people can fend for themselves. Our progressive socialist opinion is that we should have a healthy state supported by fair redistributive taxation so everybody gets a piece of pie. But fundamentally, the economy is a real thing that exists in terms of transactions and money and revenue and the rest of it. You can't say, I'm going to give every child a free unicorn. This is also a problem I have with the Greens is that they can promise whatever they like because they're not in government. And as recent events in Canberra suggest, maybe they should be kept as far away from it as possible. Well, but the, the issue with Peter Dutton is that the precedent being established by his leadership of the, of the Liberal Party is not an ideological interpretation. It's whatever he thinks will get him in power and keep him in power. We saw him lie about the referendum. Yep. We, we had now seen him lie in, like, these insistences that what is not so is so and what is so is not so means that what we learned through the horrible period of Tony Abbott, and I know it's difficult for people to remember because it's quite traumatic, Tony Abbott was actually once Prime Minister of this country and one of the platforms that he was elected on, quite frankly, was climate change denial and axing the tax. Axing, one of the most successful policy measures in the world for encouraging climate action, which was to have a tax on carbon emissions. And... His essential entry into the prime ministership of this country was to say, axe the tax, climate change isn't real, this is all panic merchanting, the rest of it. Now, a lot of people voted for Tony Abbott based on the idea, oh, yeah, we've got to axe the tax, oh, carbon tax, oh, Mm -hmm. carbon taxes are terrifying, you know, kicked out the (laughs) kind of amazing um, Gillard government because he was the party of no and the rest of it. But 
the reality underneath did not change. A politician saying climate change is not real does not actually stop climate change being real, even if you vote for them. Mm. You can't vote yourself into a different reality. You can only vote yourself into a different response. And if people are making responses as governments that are not based on reality, what happens, Ben? Well, it fails and it yes. fails miserably and, and the problems get worse. We've seen it in Britain with Brexit. We've seen it in America with the Trumpian uh, debacles that are breaking out in different states and different cities. I mean, their their budget problem, you know, we talk about debt. We talk about our national debt like it's a problem. We have this tiny little national debt in Australia. It's, it's minuscule by global standards. America has a trillion-dollar-plus deficit. Its debt is a multi-trillion-dollar debt. Now, yes, it's a far bigger economy and all the rest of it, but the realities of the situation – just don't come into play there. The people people become ideologically blinded. They become they choose their their own reality. You know, I used to love those choose your own adventure books as a kid. I didn't realize how popular they were with people of a certain generation and certain age. Turns out they must have been much more popular than I thought because there's a lot of people out there who want a choose your own reality political environment, and whether it's Greens who claim they want more and cheaper housing, but block every possible opportunity at every possible opportunity, block more uh, and affordable housing, or whether it's liberals claiming that ninety-two people, seventy-four of whom have been proven to be unable to go home because of a genuine threat to their life, are somehow or another going to disrupt the entire uh, Commonwealth of Australia. At the same time as they're voting against putting $9 billion into the pockets of workers from incredibly profitable corporations. Like, this is all about Dutton's disinformation, disingenuousness. Post-truth. And, and, it's, a, and it's, a, it's a display, right? It's, it, it's a kind of vaudeville show. Look over here. Don't look at what I'm doing. Trump did the same thing. Trump cut taxes for billionaires and multimillionaires and some of the wealthiest corporations in the world. He extended patent rights over things like medicines that would have actually made medicines cheaper in a country where things that we take for granted or get for very, very small costs, you know, $6, $7, $8 medicines, they're paying hundreds of dollars for. Thousands of dollars. And I'm talking here about things like asthma puffers, um, insulin. Like these are these are things that in Australia we go, they're readily accessible and I need them to live. In America, they they literally have people call up the helpline of these insulin providers going, what's the minimum amount of insulin I can take to survive if I don't leave my house and you know, what can I do food-wise to minimise the need to actually be able to continue to live? Ben and I had an experience on drugs.com, which is and not, you know, it's a fun weekend, good time that no. it suggests, but is a website run by the Federal Drug Administration in America, the FDA, and because American healthcare is so bad, Americans self-medicate, you know, like they're, they're self-appointed Walgreens doctors. You go to the pharmacy and 
hope a bunch of, you know, random combinations of pills will cure you. And this is healthcare in America because doctors and the kind of care we take for Australia are out of reach. So you literally go to this website and type in the names of all the supplements and all the pills that you take to see what might cause a mm. terrible reaction because you can't go to a doctor because they're too expensive. That's right. And if you do go to a doctor, chances are you can't afford treatment. This is one of the driving things behind the opioid crisis in America was that people would go to the doctor, they'd have a shoulder injury like the one you've got, for example. They might need a cortisone injection. Uh, That would cost thousands of dollars in America. They might need a reconstruction. That would cost tens of thousands of dollars in America. People don't have that money. But what, what did they have? They had relative to tens of thousands of dollars, much cheaper opioid medications. And doctors were handing out, handing out opioids because that's what their patients could afford in terms of treatment. That That is not a healthy society. And when you talk about- That's not health care. That's health punishment. And when you talk about, when we talk about Dutton and we talk about the liberals and we talk about the misinformation around things like Medicare as well, they've been out there running down the improvements to Medicare. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about a society that could easily shift to that, that kind of brutal- uh, sadistic almost. Lie-based opportunism. Yeah. And this is why Dutton is so dangerous. You know, look, I obviously have my ideological problems with Malcolm Tur- Turnbull. Yeah. But he's not, not a liar and he's not a fantasist. No. And, yep, I fought the Turnbull prime ministership with everything I had because I am a good democratic socialist and I do not believe in the power of the market. I believe in the power of the worker. Yeah. And I think that's really important. But there is, it, it, like, the the... The Liberal Party of Malcolm Turnbull and the Liberal Party of Peter Dutton are completely different ideological organisations. And the fact that Dutton is so prepared to use sensationalism and scare campaigns and outright lies in order to promote himself as the alternative Prime Minister, if he ever got that job, God help us, because we would be living in a legislative environment where decisions to allocate resources and money and move people around and affect their lives would be based on things that are not true. And, you know, Van, Russell Broadbent uh, lost pre-selection for the seat of Monash uh, in Victoria, Liberal member, been there 25 years. Uh, and don't get me wrong, everybody has a use-by date on every job. That That's true of all of us. I'm sure at some point this podcast will also come to a natural end. But Russell Broadbent was rolled by um, a much more conservative candidate uh, by for every vote, he got he got sixteen votes, and the person who rolled him got one hundred and sixty one. That shows you where the Liberal Party, even in Victoria, is going. Russell Broadbent is a moderate liberal. He's a Malcolm Turnbull type liberal. Uh, he's talked about the need for humanitarian responses to things like refugee crises. Uh, humanitarian crises around the world, uh, and he has now moved to the crossbench. He basically said, look, if I only have the support of one in ten Liberal members in Monash, I can't realistically represent them as a Liberal, um, but I was elected, so I will sit on the crossbench uh, until, the, until the election. Now, we've seen, of course, Bridget Archer cross the floor. This is... This is a moment, and you and I talked right after the election about the the Menzian Hawk uh, nature of Australian politics, and and why that's good. And we won't go. I won't go back over all that now. But 
I just want to reiterate to people that even if you feel that Labor could do more or and faster and all the rest more fireworks, we would and on my birthday, we would all like that to happen. Uh, I think there are ministers in every Labor government who would like that to happen as well. We have to really think about the kind of country we have and that maybe the people that we talk to uh, are not always the majority and how do we build those majoritarian coalitions of people who can stop the Peter Dutton disinformation, who can go, actually, I, I don't believe that's the solution to the problem, but I acknowledge the truth that there is a problem. And at the moment, we can't even get a leader of the opposition who, who is prepared to do that, who is prepared to go, the problem here is that there are some people who can't return home. There are some people who are potentially dangerous, who need to be under an appropriate supervision. And the High Court says that actually the last government's approach to this was unconstitutional and now this government has to fix it. And this is what Andrew Giles, the Minister for Immigration, like a man who, I've got to say, recommends himself for being able to stay contained and articulate under pressure because they kept firing these questions at him mm. in, in Parliament to repeat their talking points, not to actually get an answer. And he acknowledged, he said, I will now answer the question in exactly the same way for the third time. You know, we have to obey the law as the government. Like, And the law has been interpreted by the High Court through the power of the Constitution has actually conditioned our response. The Constitution is the ultimate authority here. This is what we all agreed as Australians was going to dominate the context of our parliaments and legislatures and we have a high court to interpret what the Constitution means. And it, the government has to follow that. That is the rules-based order, you know. Yeah. I just, oh, my God, I'm getting, I'm getting very, very frustrated about insistences that the world should be what it what it isn't and that things should work in a way that aren't based in consistent applications of principle. And, you know... We, My shoulder hurts. And we believe in change, right? Like we, you and I oh, and lots of the people who listen to this show believe that we can make change and we know we can make change. But we also have to accept that not every change that we want is going to happen immediately. Uh, and... In actual fact, there are opportunities, there are windows, there are times, but you've also got to... And it takes work. And And the work is the point in a democracy. Having conversations with your neighbours and your friends and your family and your community groups is actually the point. Like democracy is about majorities and about building them so we can have a shared vision and collective wisdom. And that's the point. Like a small group of self-appointed aristocrats ruling over everybody, it doesn't matter if they call themselves socialists or the United Banana Party or whatever the hell else they are. Mm. You know, a group of self-appointed aristocrats ruling over everybody else, irrespective of what the majority wants and restricting their ability to organise and make majoritarian demands is wrong. It is bad. It is evil. It doesn't matter what ideological justification you put around it. It ends up in the same place, which is misery, inequality and destruction. Look, Van, I want us to move on because talking about majoritarianism, I think it's actually really important we talk about what impacts 
people here, you know, we, we I always say that this podcast is about what is impacting working people uh, and their families and their daily lives. And one of the biggest things that impacts people in this country is obviously education, right? And there's conversations at the moment about the budget. We're obviously going into this... I don't know if people know this, but the budget cycle for the Commonwealth really starts to to ramp up now. Like departments start putting together their ideas, ministers start having ideas. It's not a, you know, it's not a 48-hour cram session before budget night in May. It's actually quite a long process of consulting around what's affordable, what do people, you know, experts think the price of iron ore will be, how much tax revenue do we think we'll get, you know, all the all the bits and pieces that make up a budget. Takes a long time. Bids. They call them budget bids. They call them budget and bids. And all of your like community groups, lobby groups, and even corporations and anybody who represents their, themselves politically, they put themselves in front of government and go, we want this. So there's discussion at the moment about the surplus. There was a surplus last financial year. There is some potential to be a surplus in this financial year. And Albo has said that maintaining the budget surplus is crucial to keeping inflation under control, and he won't be sending out checks to everyone, but will actually prioritise targeted cost of living relief measures and investments in long-term prosperity so that when the economy does eventually turn sour again and wages start to decline and unemployment starts to go up, the government has capacity to respond without borrowing at higher interest rates. This is the Keynesian economic stuff that I talked about before. If you want to know more about it, look up any of the episodes with the word Keynesian in them, and it'll have all of that information in there. But some people, and some people who claim to be on the left, have criticized this. Now, let me be really clear. Targeted cost of living relief measures include things like raising wages, making medicines cheaper, tripling the bulk billing incentive so more people can see the doctor, having the largest increase in rent assistance in 20 20 years, billions into fee-free TAFE and additional scholarships for other targeted industries, 3,000 teaching scholarships, scholarships, 3,000 more services Australia employees so people can actually talk to a person about the help, getting the help that they need, reviewing the operations of the NDIS. I've seen, I have seen uh, actual catalogues uh, online where the same piece of equipment is up to 10 times more if you're paying for it through an NDIS package than if you're just buying it outright. Outrageous. And that sort of stuff needs to end. Increase in the childcare subsidy, which has seen prices drop, not as much as people would like, obviously, but by up to 15%. And, of course, the Housing Australia Future Fund passed, plus billions of direct investment into housing to be done immediately. And let's not forget, closing loopholes. Those are all targeted. They're targeted at workers. They're targeted at low-income workers. They're targeted at women's participation, targeted at participation for people with a disability, targeted at renters, targeted at people who perhaps only have a year 10 or year 12 education getting further training. And if you don't want to use any of these words because of pre-existing biases, not that I expect that from this show, but if the notion of young people or women, if those terms make you nervous, how about we try the term customer base? 
Oh, customer God. base. <laughs> That's your customer base. Now, do you want your customer base to have more money so they can spend it in your shop? Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? Because if they're not getting more money, they're not going to spend it in your shop. And one of the one of the things about this, Van, as you and I have both been involved in the Forever Child campaign. Proudly. Being run by the Australian Education Union and the various branches of the teachers union around the country. So proudly. Um, because 98% of our schools, our public schools, remain funded below the minimum standard. It's more than 98%, in fact. I mean, it's something like only 1.3% are funded at the minimum standard. What that, and they've been in Canberra this week because, of course, you want to get those, you want to be in front of people while those budget bids are being built. And there's been a report come out that shows uh, that public education provides education to 82% of low socioeconomic. Uh, Households, eighty-three uh, percent of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, sixty-seven percent of students with a disability, and sixty-eight percent of students with a language background other than English. That is a huge number of people. So when we talk about targeted investment to build future prosperity, and we talk about how do we how do we put in place infrastructure that will help people live prosperous lives with better health outcomes and better economic outcomes and stronger communities, investing in education, investing in public education is investing in these areas. It's it, 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 Not every public school is in a low socioeconomic area, obviously, but when 82% of people from a low socioeconomic background are in public education and 98% of public schools are underfunded, that is a huge proportion of Australians who are not getting access to the minimum standards they need to get the quality education they will require. And the consistency of education. Because this is what's happening. Public schools are awesome. I had a 100% entirely public school education and it's got me all over the world. My life is amazing Mm. and it's entirely because I had that solid foundation of public education and I'm grateful to all my teachers for that. But the risk within the system, and I don't know a single public school teacher who doesn't, who doesn't have that vocational calling because yeah. you go into it because you believe in it, you know, and because you love children yeah. and you want to you want to create the opportunities for them that were created for you to live a fulfilling life and to pursue your vocation. And that happens even in the system, underfunded as it is, that commitment is still there. Oh. The risk hanging over everything is teacher burnout. Yeah. That is the issue here. And this is what we're talking about. Teachers who are so stressed out of their minds that they are compensating for shortfalls in the system, working ludicrous hours. And people go, oh, you know, they got all the holidays and the rest of it. Holidays are actually really important in terms of being able to prepare and assess the work that they yeah. do in the school environment. You know, this is, it, it, you know, this idea that, oh, well, yeah, they got all the holidays the kids get is just ridiculous nonsense. The 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 shortfall in the system of resources, the short like teachers are compensating for these things mm. all the time. Mm. And as teachers get older, it gets harder. And new teachers, less experienced teachers who come into a system 
that overextends them burnout. And, you know, anything going on in your personal life as a teacher, I know this is difficult to understand, but teachers also have families and caring commitments and personal lives, and they're not paid at the level of comparable professionals in terms of the amount of training that they're obliged to do. And the situation, while we keep shortfalling the system, is the burden on teachers grows greater and greater and greater. It is Unsustainable. And, I've, and I have heard teachers, young teachers, say that they want to start families and, and, and break down and cry. Pregnant, pregnant women break down and cry about the prospect of not going back into teaching because of the stress and feeling that they would not be able to have a family and deal with the stress uh, and, and have that conversation with teachers who have been uh, in the profession for a long time, who have had um, significant problems getting the resources they need to help keep the class under control, have suffered physical injury. Like teachers do such an amazing, such an amazing amount. And they of turn work. up the next day. I mean, yeah. I've seen that happen. I know that that happens. And it, and when we talk about the surplus, so when we talk about the budget and we talk about the surplus, we talk about why it's important from a Keynesian perspective to have a surplus when unemployment is low and wages are rising and inflation is still maybe a thing, although increasingly I suspect it's not. Um, it's about how you invest that money and what you invest it in. And if you're investing it in teachers and support staff and equipment and the things that are needed in areas that are often low socioeconomic, so they have little to no form of investment coming from private enterprise or other places, then you're actually targeting it. It's doing the sorts of things that Keynes would want us to do. And it's the investment in the future as well. There is this amazing article that came out in The Atlantic, which is one of my favourite magazines, Ben and his forbearance with my amazing magazine subscription issue. There's piles of magazines. Piles of ma- We're actually surrounded by piles of magazines. I love them. I live through them. There's this fantastic um, long interview feature piece about Peter Thiel in The Atlantic this month. Now, Peter Thiel is one of the founders of PayPal. Mm. We actually have to hold him responsible for Elon Musk and also Donald Trump because he was a major funder Mm. of Donald Trump, he's funded the political campaigns of some of the literally worst people in American politics. He's a libertarian Mm. and he's just frankly a, a, a just a disgusting human being. And I mention this in the context of public education funding in Australia because Peter Thiel was asked in this interview about why he's not giving, he's, he did the interview because he's like, I want you to hold me to my pledge to not give money to political campaigns anymore. Yeah. Right? I don't want to do it anymore because the things I want to see aren't happening. And what he wants to see is like a techno-libertarian paradise. He wants to see rockets going to the moon and he wants to see cloning and he wants to see, or well, well, maybe not cloning, but, you know, sort of Star Trek-y kind of stuff. Yeah. But run by libertarians where nobody pays any tax. Right. And he's like, all this venture capital money I've got, I'm trying to invest it in all these like future tech things and none of it's coming together and I'm really depressed and I just don't know if democracy or political processes can do it. And it's like how can you possibly not understand the link between you electing all of these dudes who cut your taxes, J.D. Vance's, he's a revolting senator from Ohio, your Trumps and the rest of it. So Trump cut tax in America. 
and the degradation of all your social infrastructure that could actually facilitate the kind of vision and entrepreneurship and invention and science and majesty that you actually want to see. How can you not identify what you have been doing, which is derining and corroding the very system that could provide you with what you want? Peter Thiel, um, under the former Conservative government in New Zealand, got a, I've got billions of dollars in whatever I want, citizenship of New Zealand, and has brought up heaps of New Zealand. Because America, thanks to his work, is now such an awful, terrible, dystopian place that he has bought land and tried to resettle in a socially democratic country because it's nicer and everything's not falling apart. And it's like, it's better because it doesn't have your influence in it, Peter. That is why. But this is the point I'm trying to make. Like... We there's a lot of inherited propaganda in Western culture about how rich people are somehow like smarter and cooler and better bred and more creative and just better. And you can read the occasional column in the Australian written by Dimwit about how we shouldn't even worry about funding public schools because everybody who goes there is just stupid because they're poor, right? And do you know this is not actually true? Mm. God gives out the gifts equally. If you're a religious person, r- like randomization of circumstance, if you're not a religious person, is is what we're holding on to here. There are very, very, very smart people at public schools, kids who have infinite potential. And if we're not enfranchising them, if we're concentrating consistency of education, educational supervision, if we've got a a safe educational environment for only the tiny percentage of the population who can afford it and the kids who have developed resilience and robustness and understand diversity because they live in it, who understand how to deal with social challenges, if we are threatening their capacity to get an education and to fulfil their vocational callings and their social trajectories, do you know what we get? We get a disorganised unequal, unbalanced, not maximised, in fact, completely impaired future. Absolutely. And I think with the cost of living crisis, you're seeing more and more people ask the question, which they should be asking, is why why are we paying private school fees at the cost of $20,000 a year when the educational outcomes that private schools obtain, on average, are no different. They're no different. They're no different. Absolutely no different. So with lesser, with, with fewer resources, with with less capacity, public schools are performing just as well as these extraordinarily high marketing, high fee priced private schools. Uh, and it's time, beyond time, that... We use a bit of that surplus to invest, as you say, in the future, to invest in the now and to give every child in this country the future they deserve. And if you want to support that campaign, look, over 72,000 petitions, postcards, supporters have been collected. The AEU is going to deliver them to the PM at the end of November. Um, I'm actually going to be uh, at that in Canberra. Uh, I'm looking forward looking forward to seeing that. There's so many people out there now. You can go to uh, www.foreverychild.au. Just fill in the postcard. Let Elbow know, you know, public schools need to be funded to the minimum standard. It's not a lot to ask to say, let's fund to the minimum standard. As you can hear from Van, if you could see Van's face right now, you would know that 
in this household, we don't think that should be funded to the minimum standard. Public schools should be palaces of education. They should be. Public school teachers. And it shouldn't be at the expense of, like, teacher well-being. No, and public, and public school teachers should be absolute fonts of knowledge and wisdom in their community and well-respected and well-remunerated. That is a profession that deserves and needs to be um, a core part of every community and particularly, particularly low socioeconomic communities need good teachers because, as you say, Van, the randomization of life, you know, what we're going to, we're going to miss out on the person who does help us get to Mars. We're going to miss out on the person who does cure cancer. Because their favorite teacher had a nervous breakdown due to overwork. Because they, because they were in the wrong postcode. That's ridiculous. That is a ridiculous set of circumstances when we have all this data, we have all this knowledge, we have all this money, we know we can fix this problem, we know what it costs, we know how to do it. Let's get on and do it for every child. Teachers carry the future, so why aren't we carrying them? Like what is our investment here? And it's particularly galling when, you know, the the absolutely horrendous comments made by various private school principals about that horrible episode of violence mm. um, in Sydney where a young man murdered or appears to have murdered uh, his former girlfriend and, oh, well, you know, he was such an upstanding young man and I'm really confused how could this happen from a principal and it's like why are we directing resources towards these cloistered, exclusive you know, so, mm. like socially self-marginalising, you know, com- communities of privilege when all of this potential exists in the randomization of life, why are, we, why are we perpetuating an exclusivity when we could instead be extending a shared potential? Indeed. So let's fund every school to at least the minimum standard. Let's provide every child with the resources and opportunities that they need, and it'll build a better Commonwealth. Like, it will build a better Commonwealth. Ben, we need to talk about the good news. Um, can we talk about how cute the dog is? The dog is very cute. He, Do you want to describe what the dog is doing? He's, he's sort of got his legs tucked up and he's laying on your lap and he's got he's, he's sort of nodding off a little bit. He's having a snooze. But um, the good news is not just that the dog is uh, unbearably cute. The... Australian trade union movement through the ACTU, through the CFMEU uh, National Construction Division. Shout out to my former DUSA comrade, Zach Smith, who is the National Secretary of the CFMEU Construction Division. I know this might be amazing for you to absorb, but not everybody knows what DUSA stands for. Oh, sorry, the Deakin University Student Association. Uh, Yes. Quite the pedigree, our DUSA, quite pedigree. Indeed. A uh, number of uh, uh, number of good people in, in doing good works and some other people as well. Um, uh, shout out to uh, Senator Raff from Victoria, another former Deakin University Student Association alumni. And that other senator whose name we don't mention. We won't mention. But the good news is that uh, Safe Work Australia – has said that there should be a ban on uh, engineered stone. I have said there should be a ban. And IKEA and Bunnings have now said they'll ban it. Now, I'm going to quote Zach here. 
because he says, there is now unstoppable momentum behind banning engineered stone. IKEA now backs what the CFMEU and health experts have been saying all through this campaign. There is no safe exposure to engineered stone. Bunnings, so Bunnings are going to stop selling engineered stone on 31st December. WorkSafe ACT has introduced new code, which has heavy fines for workplaces that fail to protect workers. Uh, the CFMEU are saying IKEA's move is welcome. They actually need to provide a date, like saying, yeah, we're going to ban it. We'll go around to banning it. That's fine. Uh, Van, this is universally good news. Tony Burke, who is, of course, the uh, Federal uh, Occupational Health and Safety Minister as part of his IR portfolio, has said no one should ever contract a terminal illness simply because they've turned up to work. And let's be really clear about this because you've done some work on this dust yeah. stuff. Well, I mean, it's no secret that I'm originally from a coal mining community, mm. beautiful Wollongong, forever in my heart, and the job that put me through uni was working for the CFMU, documenting or documenting oral histories of coal miners talking about coal mining and black lung disease. So I grew up with this and the reality of that in a community. I just did uh, the narration of a documentary done by the History Listen on the ABC called Dusted, which is a three-part series about dust diseases in miners and mm. the price that Australia has paid for its mining wealth, not only in terms of um, asbestos and asbestosis, coal mining and black lung disease, but also what they used to call miners tysis back on the on the gold fields, which is of course silicosis. And 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 Australians have Australian companies have known about the threats to miners' health from silicosis, whatever name they knew it by for more than 150 years, Ben. And I want to be really clear about this. You know, we are not <laughs> we are not opposed to job creation, which I know is what big business lobby groups like to say whenever we talk about more regulation or banning something that's killing people but making someone else a profit. Um, what we're opposed to is profiteering from death and misery of the Australian people. And just like they're doing with the Closing the Loopholes bill, big business have funded a campaign to try and stop the Closing the Loopholes bill. There are businesses right now who are campaigning to stop the banning of engineered stone. Even despite the fact it kills people. Despite the fact it kills people, despite the fact that uh, WorkSafe Australia, so, sorry, Safe Work Australia say, has said, we have gave you decades to put in place a voluntary regime. We gave you every opportunity to demonstrate how you would make this safe, and you didn't do it. So now we're saying it should be banned. And I also want to acknowledge Chris Minns, the Labor Premier of New South Wales, has been made a pre-election promise saying he was going to ban engineered stone. His preference, as he has said, would be for a national agreement yep. on the banning of it. And New South Wales is going to ban it anyway. This was announced a week ago, which is awesome. That's political leadership. No one should die for a kitchen bench top. No one should die from uh, for a kitchen bench top. It is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Like, you know, and people are calling it asbestos too, but this disease, the effect of silicosis, that I mean, like I said, please listen to the documentary. It is extraordinary. It has been with us for a very long time. This is not new. This is what I'm trying to say. <sighs> Companies will do what they can get away with. It's part of the reason it's why. So being, don't let them get away with it. It's part of why it's important to be in your union, you know, because it's not just about your job security. It's also about your personal safety. It's not just about your wages. 
It's about your health. You know, they always say anyone who complains about um, having to pay a minimum wage is telling you they'd pay you nothing if they could. Anyone who complains about the burden of occupational health and safety is telling you they don't care if you die as long as they make a profit. Now, that sounds harsh, and there'll be people who go, that's not what I mean when I say that. Well, if you're campaigning to keep giving people an incurable lung disease which shaves 20 to 30 years off their life, people who will grow up and their kids will never get to know them, then quite frankly, that's exactly what you're doing. But the good news is IKEA and Bunnings, two of the largest users of engineered stone in this country, have said, nah, we draw the line. So good on them and particularly good on the workers and the unions who are standing up to make sure that happens. Particularly thrilled that Bunnings is doing it, given the fact that we live in a regional community <laughs> where, you know, like Bunnings is pretty central to the shared life experience of people who live out here, and them doing the right thing, can I just say, makes the sausage at the barbecue a little bit sweeter. That's right. Now, then, people who do the right thing, community coming together, that's what this podcast has been about since day one. It's been going now for over three years. This is episode 156. You know, it, I can't believe people aren't tired of listening to us yet, but they keep tuning in, record numbers every every week. And not only that, a podcast that is free to listen to, free to download, please share it with as many people as you can. We know that times are tough financially. There are still people who are making financial contributions. Some are making a once-off. Some are making a buck a week. Some are doing extend the reach and giving us $10 a month. We use the contributions people make to pay for advertising to get the show to more people. Uh, it is as helpful to us as if you can recommend the show and share it to your social media networks, to your friends, organise a listening party. Ben and I had the most wonderful moment at Ballarat, at an event for Ballarat Library that I did about disinformation recently where these people came up to us who listened to the show and I was like, we always find it so amazing because we thought it'd just be the two of us talking about democratic, socialist, neo-Keynesian macroeconomic policy and just having a bit of a chat maybe 20 of our friends would join in and there are thousands and thousands of you. And I said, so thank you for being a democratic socialist now Keynesian and they were like you know I'd never thought of myself in those terms before but it turns out that's what I am so if we're helping you with the language you're all political and um politically economic social identity we like that's I mean that's fulfilling yeah it is fulfilling and for Jim he just made a cute little noise what we do like to do though is because our cadre give us 20 bucks a month and our extended reach do chip in 10 bucks a month and that does help us reach even more people. Obviously, we will never have the budgets of a Murdoch or a Channel or a Nine or a Seven West Media. We just, that's just not who we are. And that's okay. But together, collectively, whether it's sharing it with your friends or us using that money, and let me tell you, every single dollar and more of that money goes into these ads. We can reach people and we can reach substantial numbers of people. It's amazing that this podcast that we're recording while you literally lay on the floor with the dog on your lap in our, in, in our spare room in some agony. Is, is up there in the top 40 when it comes to news and politics on, on Apple Podcasts. So, Van, you got the cadre list there? Let's read out those I, names. I apologise again that I sound a bit sharp, but I am in just... 
Horrendous physical pain. Okay. Uh, Cadre. Shamila Lacombe was Deanne Weir, Joe Lockery, Steph Karina Baliat, Jane C. Campbell. Leonie Gibbon, Shane Horsfall, Jessica Davy, 26, Andy Stavick, Gan Lee, Jason Paris, Mega Ichi Soros, Matrizese, Anne Coleman, Ross Kenner, 888, Bromlin, Cockington, Terry Butler, Jack Powell, Gal Ferguson, Rebecca McFanning for Longman, Colin Kelly, Ali Vance, Miriam, Love Your Work, Yeet Yeti, Claire, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akiva Boris, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aiken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, Ajit Carney, Brawlman, Punch Strength Veteran, Jenny Forster Seven, Cassandra Tui, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Hannah Honda, Matt Bush, Glenn Robbie, Brush Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cartwright, Leanne Jingles, I Don't Have Twitter, My Name is Susan Myers, Karen Ash 20, Billy Three McCabe, Marissa Simon, at Catagal, Lauren Ashen Banjo, Naranga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Red White, Louise Rot, Louise Watson slash Red White and Blue Lou, Red White Blue Lou. Sorry, sore shoulder. Extend the Reach supporters. Kim Delahaye, Murray Bardwell, Janet McCallman, Jeremy Moe, Rosie Elliott Lara, at Robert Notfield One, Michael Wales, Sanj Kelly, Darina, Donald Bourne, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slab, Cameron Tridragon, Daniel Crazy, Keza, John DeHaan, Ange Fennell, Anna Uren, Melanie Didding, Jody A, Penelope Judge, Spirit of Anger and Hope, S. Wood. Idoms, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Rich Graver, Someone, Vita W, Nandita Hannah, Maura Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honan, at Galvez, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Ilian and Andrew, Ivis Spillett, Peter O.C., Sam Hadid, Gib Patterson, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Never Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, at Not Sandy B., Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Bagloya, Matthew Case, Marky Mark, Adrian Valente, Mazuritsa at Carrie L68, Frank Nahouse, Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lapino, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, and Pauline Bate. And I am now quite active on Threads and on Blue Sky, which are the new social media platforms that are replacing Twitter, which is now called X, which is run by like terrible human being Elon Musk, and is absolutely saturated with Russian disinformation agents and Nazis. So do come and find me at Van Batam on Threads and on Blue Sky. The week on Wednesday is on Threads and I am also on Blue Sky. Uh, we haven't got a week on Wednesday Blue Sky account yet. Uh, you can also, of course, uh, catch updates through uh, Reddit, Facebook, and yes, still uh, Instagram, of course. And uh, yes, we are unfortunately still, in some ways, uh, beholden to uh, X and Elon Musk. Uh, I, still... I will never give that man a dollar. No, we never will. Not a dollar. We don't. To be fair, we don't spend any advertising money on uh, Twitter. Uh, it all goes to other, <laughs> other multi-billion-dollar platforms. But that's. The world we live in if we want to change it we've got to come together and do the work ben until next time love you darling i love you too you are so great i'll even cook you dinner bye, bye.